Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the podcast that refused to die from COVID-19. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and as you may know, Pete Puccio and I are the source of all important information about Western Connecticut State University. And we also throw in some inane trivia. For instance, Pete, I was thinking about you while I watched some of the presidential inauguration. There's all this pomp and important things, of course, but none of them can happen without an operating tech, a sound system and a tech guy standing there wringing his hands the whole time, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I notice that every time I watch something like that on TV is the, the guy who's having a heart attack behind the scenes somewhere hoping right. that the, the mics all right. work. And the, yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, you can imagine the tech guys cramping up when Lady Gaga says, oh, I want to bring my own gold-plated microphone <laughs> to sing the national anthem. Well, luckily for them, though, they're probably making tons of money and have access to anything they want. They're not uh, piecing it together with, you know, duct you mean tape. Like here and, at West yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> ah, we do all right. Yeah, and they did all right at the inauguration. I don't think anything cut out or no mic died or anything. Yeah. Here at uh, Westcon, Pete likes to say he's seen more dead mics than an Irish undertaker. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Remember when you said that? I do. I, I Like it was yesterday, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're recording this just a few days before students return to campus and line up for their RONA tests. We will answer all your questions about that and also talk with Dr. Stephanie Kuhn, a professor of education and educational psychology. Dr. Kuhn was awarded the 2020 Provost Award for Teaching and also as the coordinator for the popular Applied Behavior Analysis Program here at WestCon. In addition, Dr. Rada Krell, a regular on the podcast, but also the university's newest biology professor, will bring back the Science Minute. How's that all sound, Pete? I like it. No, we also have Coach uh, Joe Loth coming back to uh, tell us about how long he cried about the Browns losing in the playoffs. Ouch. <laughs> All right, so we can go right into our interview with Dr. Stephanie Kuhn. I thought we'd start with what you teach here and what goes into the uh, Applied Behavior Analysis Program, which I understand is very popular. Sure, yeah, I uh, teach in the Applied Behavior Analysis Program. We're housed in the Education Department here at WCSU, and I also serve as the graduate coordinator, the program coordinator for the program. Mm -hmm. So I work with new students coming in and, you know, manage the program data and that type of thing. What are students looking for when they apply for this graduate program? So applied behavior analysis is, you know, it's placed very well in our School of Professional Studies because similar to the other programs in that area of the university, we train practitioners. So we train individuals, uh, we, the education portion, uh, these individuals who are going to go out and work with people on um, changing behavior. And it can be a wide variety of things, but I would say that by far the predominant area that our students work in is in education and in particular in education with students with developmental disabilities such as autism. Are they teachers or counselors uh, in schools? 
You know, they can really be both. They can be teachers, so they may come in with a graduate degree in teaching already. They may have no graduate degree, and, and this is their graduate degree. In that case, they wouldn't be teachers, but they may be working in a school system as a behavior analyst, and they may be working in several classrooms or one classroom in combination with other professionals, such as teachers and speech-language pathologists, um, mm-hmm. And they all and they all work together um, to you know target both skill improvement and also behavior reduction where appropriate. Um, they can be counselors. They can be school psychologists. They can work in outpatient health settings or outpatient clinic settings, after school programs, all of those types of things. So their their discipline coming in can be varied. And behavior analysis is not restricted to developmental disabilities. It's a little harder to get practice than employment in other areas, but we have behavior analysts working in uh, addiction, in geriatric work, in um, animal behavior, hmm. uh, all over, all, all different kinds of areas. My impression that the area of developmental disability is something that uh, the concentration on in school districts is... relatively new, not brand new, but within the last generation, say, is something that has really grown as uh, uh, an area of interest and expertise. You know, these kids who used to come in 20 to 40 years ago, say, uh, who were uh, different, in air quotes, who didn't learn in the traditional way or who were disengaged in class, were shunted aside, moved through. They may get the, through high school with a, uh, and get a diploma, but they didn't really learn anything in school, to be very broad about it. And now students like this really have access to uh, really great uh, opportunities to learn, however they learn. Yes, and I would say, you know, the big switch is we see this in our education system, but I would also say that we see in the communities that we live in. So Mm. if you look at individuals with developmental disabilities, you know, you're talking 40, 50 years ago, these individuals maybe weren't living with their families even then. So Uh they certainly weren't being educated in our community schools. Mm -hmm. But now these individuals are not living in institutions. They're living with their families. They're going to their community schools. Um, Sometimes they're living in group homes when they're older or when they're children, if that's appropriate. Um, But this this has all been part of the process of deinstitutionalization. And um, we as a society have benefited from this by having a diverse population. And our individuals with developmental disabilities in our population are part of that diversity. Um, And I think we all benefit from that. Absolutely. Uh, Students with autism or on the autism spectrum, if that's the right way to say it, is, uh, I think, relatively recently were um, not even identified often in a school setting. Um, And now I think it's easier to not only identify, but there are programs set up already to help students, say, with autism. Well, yeah, there's a huge range of um, needs for kids with autism. Some kids who have this diagnosis have a need for very little assistance in the school mm-hmm. setting. 
Um, other individuals have great need. They may have very extreme communication difficulties and um, difficulties with speech and communication and behavior. So there is this, and they may they may need extensive support. Um, you know, this is this what we call neurodiversity that we see, and um, you know, there's a lot of differences across individuals with autism and. Along with that, there's a lot of difference in, in preference for assessment and treatment. So, you know, some individuals on the spectrum and their families would advocate that they don't need intervention, while as others are, are desperate for intervention. Um, mm-hmm. So there is a, a range of, of both need and, and preference for, for what they may want to target, um, just like with any other individual um, you know, what their, what their personal priorities are and what their priorities are for their family and their child. Sometimes it's educating the parents, right, and helping them figure out what the system can offer. Yes. I mean, that's a huge part of it. And that's very much true in, in a lot of behavioral approaches. We see this in our sort of sister sciences in, um, in the psychology type field, which you could put behavior analysis loosely into. It's it is a separate field, but obviously we share a lot of history and there's a lot in common, but cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavior therapy, these all share a lot of those common features where there's a big focus on parent change training and looking at um, the effects of changing parent behavior on, on child behavior. I assue most of the people that you are in the program are coming into it with the idea that um, this is what they want to learn about and focus on. But do they, in the broader educational system, when you talk about newer, the newer diversity, do you and the people you teach face roadblocks in um, finding acceptance for this type of diversity? Yes, certainly. Um, You know, there are different viewpoints on this in the education system, and there's different levels of, I would say, sort of knowledge and understanding and and perspective on this. And we've come a long way in, Mm -hmm. in understanding this, but there's really a long way to go, too. And I think that we all have to be very open to, you know, listening to others' opinions and voices and, and can making these considerations and, and, and determination. It's one of the things I love about working with a team with different disciplines and making sure that the family is involved every step of the way is that it's very much, it shouldn't be just one person's opinion about what should be targeted. We need We, we do need to use our evidence-based um, literature to guide us, but at the same time, we have to have this social validity piece where we're involving all of the stakeholders. So, you know, parents, siblings, people in the environment, what's important to them, what's going to make a difference in their daily lives and, um, you know, uh, not, and be in line with their values and their goals as well. And sometimes teachers, the main teacher in the classroom, the one who is not uh, one of your graduates is, doesn't understand uh, at the beginning either, right? They have, have to be more inclusive and maybe do some things differently to make sure that um, the children you're focusing on are also learning. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I would say that, it, you know, a, a teacher with a special education background, which, you know, a lot of classrooms would have perhaps a co-teacher. So kids who are in an inclusive classroom where they may have a teacher who's more in the general education um, setting. If they have individuals with disabilities in their classroom, we see a lot of this co-teaching where there Mm -hmm. will also be a special educator in the classroom, at least for a portion of the day. That teacher would certainly have a better understanding of that, and they would be able to work together to modify the curriculum appropriately. And the behavior analyst can get involved with, um, you know, sticking points in terms of progress moving forward with education and also interfering behavior problems. Yeah, it's very interesting. How did you decide to go into this uh, particular area? That's a good question. I mean, I do have a psychology undergraduate degree, and like many who graduate with a psychology undergraduate degree, there's not a ton of of related positions that you can get into when you graduate with with a bachelor's in psychology. Mm -hmm. You need to do some graduate work. But I did have an amazing opportunity to work at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, which is part of Johns Hopkins Hospital after I was an undergrad and I worked on an inpatient unit for individuals with severe behavior disorders. Um, Autism was actually just really becoming a diagnosis at that time. I'm aging myself a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, I got a lot of hands-on work and I worked with some of the most fantastic um, professionals that I've ever met in my life. I, I stayed there a while and then I went on to graduate school and then I actually went back there for my, my um, pre-doctoral internship and stayed on for a while as faculty. Um, so it was where I was really brought up in, into behavior analysis. And I was um, always a clinician. I still am a clinician. So I was um, doing clinical work and clinical research primarily then. And after I left and was working in Westchester. And then um, I was teaching as an adjunct, but this opportunity came up to potentially teach full-time at Western. And it was a really nice time um, for a shift in my career and to use all of my clinical expertise and um, my education to uh, contribute to teaching young behavior analysts. And I, I find it very important because this field has grown exponentially um, in the in the recent years. And there is a need for really quality education. You know, we need to really provide quality education to these individuals who are going out and practicing in the field. And it's twofold. So they need their classes. They need good professors to teach them all of this information. And then they need good fieldwork supervisors to make sure that they're uh, getting that practice and feedback and expertise while working in, in the field. Mm-hmm. It really is growing, right? The uh, applied behavioral analysis program is always filled up, isn't that right? We the do students. get pretty close to, yeah, we, mm. we've expanded a, a, a bit and we do get pretty close to full. Um, we our, our fall semester tends to be a bit more full when we, so we enroll cohorts in the fall and also in the spring. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the traditional sort of fall start is definitely um, a bit more popular as a start time. Um, it's a little bit lower in the spring, but we're pretty full. And, you know, just like everybody else, we have felt a little bit of the enrollment um, hit with all that's going on in the world with COVID and the decrease in enrollment, but we're doing okay. Yeah. You're a mostly online program, isn't that right? We're actually fully online. Mm. 
100% online, yeah. So it's perfect for COVID. <laughs> it is perfect in some ways, but um, yeah, it's funny. Everyone had to go online. The, myself and the other professors in the program are like, see, teaching online is not easy. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> there are a lot of challenges. We're not just sitting here with our feet up, like <laughs> drinking coffee. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, and, and our program is asynchronous. So, you know, when you teach online and when you deliver courses online, you can either do it live, which we refer to as synchronous. So you're teaching when your students are there, or you do asynchronous when the students can complete their coursework at um, different times. They don't all log in at the same time. And our program is asynchronous, which provides a huge advantage to students who are working and have families and have hectic lives. They can do it at a time during the week that fits for them, um, but it also poses challenges in that um, there's not a live professor there while they're watching the lectures to answer questions and, and other sort of similar things. So we work to um, solve these problems with our teaching while still stay, staying in that format, and we're always looking to analyze our our de delivery and, and delivering a high-quality education to these, to these students. Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit. I noticed that, didn't you get your undergrad degree in Louisiana? So I got my undergraduate degree at Virginia Tech, um, and I got my master's degree and my PhD at uh, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. Did you grow up in the South? I didn't. We moved around a ton. So I lived in a lot of different places as a child. We did settle in Virginia when I was in high school, which is how I ended up at Virginia Tech. And I had yeah. a fabulous experience there. And um, it is where I started getting interested in behavior. Virginia Tech has some um, really great professors in the area of uh, behavior analysis. And um, it so happens that my, my first supervisor at Kennedy Krieger got his PhD at Virginia Tech, and so we had that in common, and yeah. I think that was a little bit of a, a connection that, that helped me along my way. And then sure. I ended up at LSU because the, my major professor for my PhD um, is this amazing behavior analyst, Dorothea Lerman who um, I aspired to work with and, and to do research with, and I was lucky enough to be accepted in to her lab and to do my research there while I was in graduate school. So do you like it better up here with us Yankees or better down there with this, uh, the Southerners? <laughs> Not sure I should answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I am happy here. I, I, love, um, I love where I am. It's been a great place to um, raise my family and I love the culture at Western. I have so many colleagues that I really enjoy working with. I miss seeing them, um, but I hmm. still talk to someone from work, usually by text, <laughs> but almost uh -huh. every day. <laughs> so we, um, you know, we're still we're still connecting, but just a little different than we were before. Right. And you obviously are enthusiastic about uh, the program and about everything that you talk about. You know, the the you're the recipient of last year's. Provost Award for Teaching, which goes to, has gone always to professors who really are engaged in, with their students in the classroom, I was going to say, even online. How, uh, what's your approach to make you, that, that helped you 
um, get recognition with this award, do you think? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I would say it's a couple things. One is that um, I really value and respect the people that I work with. And I, I was nominated for this award by a fellow colleague, and that is how professors get nominated for this award. So um, I would do that anyway, but I, that is how it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I really like working as a team. I, I want to make sure that you know, everyone's opinion and thoughts are brought together and that, and that we have a collaborative approach and that we're, you know, working together to, on, on the program that we're not kind of just in these silos. I think that really is better for us and it's better for our students. Um, I, I think one thing that's really great about someone in my position getting this award is that we have a lot of emphasis on undergraduate programs at WCH. WCSE, which is so fantastic, but we have a lot of really great graduate programs as well, and I think that they do get recognition, but, you know, they, these students don't live on door, in the dorms, and they're not on campus, and they're not, they're not necessarily involved in all of the, well, obviously, the athletics and all the groups on campus, so maybe they're a little bit less noticed. I'm not sure if that's the best word, but mm -hmm. I, I think it's great for a graduate program to sort of get the spotlight a little bit with with someone from the program being recognized in this way and then to add to it you know there are there is a perception that fully online programs are inferior to traditional delivery of of um of education at, at, at this level and while I 100% agree that we should never be 100% fully online, I do think that there are going to be fully online programs and there's a place for them. And we have a lot to learn about how to do this well. And I'm interested in, in learning that, knowing how to do it. So I don't think that every program should ever be online. I don't think that all ABA programs should be online, but ours is. And I think if we're going to do it, we should try to figure out how to do it really well. You mentioned how important collaboration is, but it's also more difficult to do that, right? You could be in your own silo and dictate things and uh, just do it that way without talking to other people about how things should work. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see it as more difficult. I mean, we don't always agree, but I learned through that process, and I always look for kind of like a middle ground if if possible. I, I think that... Um, we all benefit by learning more and, and, and working better together. You know, if we think we've got everything all set and, and, you know, we don't need to hear anyone else's information, I think that we learn a lot less and we sort of stay stagnant. So um, we've got this great community of professors and we can really learn from them. And I certainly have. Um, I, there's a lot of different coming together with the individuals who teach online when the university was really, you know, in this situation where they had to go fully online and to watch how everyone came together to really contribute their information and, and try to help each other with ideas and experiences was pretty special. Uh, and I was really amazed by the community that we have and, and how much people wanted to spend a lot of time helping each other. That's great. Uh, that's what I had. I really appreciate you coming on uh, to talk with us today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Yo, thank you for having me. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. No, you were very concise. Okay, good. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. 
Okay, take care. Bye. Our many regular listeners will know that Dr. Rada Krell has contributed to this podcast over the past couple of years with the Science Minute, an insider's look at what goes on in the Westcon Science Building. Dr. Krell was working on a grant finance position, and when the grant ran out, so did the job. But Pete and I so appreciated what she does on the podcast that we offered her a permanent professorship in the biology department, and she accepted. So Rada can also continue now as a partner with at WCSU. For our non-academic listeners, Pete and I actually have no power to offer professorships. <laughs> and our yeah, and our our academic listeners are now outraged that I would joke about this sacred process. <laughs> now that we've gotten that out of the way, welcome back, Dr. Rada Krell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, really, I, I'm not sure what message we're sending. You know, hey, if you if you get on a podcast, kids, someday you might get an academic position. <laughs> That's how we like it here. <laughs> but you know, it's good to uh, to have many pathways. <laughs> Maybe that's a better a better approach. Anyway, um, it's, I'm thrilled to be back. I love I love talking about what's going on in the science building, as you know. Um, and so we're getting ready to launch the semester. Um, I even though I didn't have an official position last semester, I was teaching labs and. Uh, we were still in a period in the biology department of figuring out how do we teach labs safely. And so for the most part, our labs were online. Um, and so it was a very strange experience of essentially teaching a live interactive science TV show <laughs> is what it <laughs> felt like is we would do a little demonstration and we would pause and ask questions and we I we made it work you know I think the students still had a relatively engaging experience but now that here we are a year after uh, we first knew that COVID-19 was in the country and we have done enough work and uh, been able to dig in enough in terms of how to do in-person labs safely that we will go back to teaching some in-person labs this fall and, or this spring. And we are, um, so we've been thinking a lot about how we do that. And teaching is always a logistical endeavor in terms of organizing uh, a class period, especially for a laboratory where you have uh, materials involved. But um, in this case, we've, so we've added <laughs> to the logistics in terms of our safety. And of course, lab safety is always uh, a topic. It's usually the first topic that's addressed in any lab that a student will have. But in this case, we'll have just a little extra in terms of our lab safety, in terms of not only keeping people safe in terms of what do you do if you drop a piece of glassware and what's the appropriate way to manage cleaning it up so you don't get cut, to now how do we keep people safe from uh, getting an infectious pathogen. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, so one, in terms of what we're doing, one thing that we're doing is all of our labs are essentially half size. So normally we might have up to like 22, 24 students in a lab. So we're splitting our labs in half. So we don't have as many people in the room at a time. And this means some of the things that they would normally do in lab, we'll have them do either before or after they, they get to the lab because we have less time. So, um, so that's part of it. When students come in, they're obviously, anytime they're in the building, they're wearing their masks, 
when they enter a laboratory, they're going to sanitize their hands and put on gloves immediately. And they will keep those gloves on for the duration of the lab. And then before they leave, they will have to disinfect the area they were working and uh, leave the gloves, throw the gloves away in the lab before they leave. So whatever happens in the lab should stay in the lab. <laughs> they don't want anything <laughs> moving around. Um, the, the other piece that we have spent quite a bit of time on for biology is how do you safe to, safely use microscopes? How do you, you know, when you're sticking your face onto a piece of equipment that is right. going to be shared potentially by, you know, a couple hundred students, is there a safe way to do that? Um, and so we have procedures in place for the most part for our labs. Um, we have one lab that has over a hundred students, um, in total. And so for that one, we've opted not to do a physical microscope lab. We're using a virtual microscope. Um, but for our, for example, our cell biology class, which is highly dependent on microscopes, um, there just will be extra procedures in place where essentially a student is sort of checked out a microscope. We'll be careful that that microscope doesn't get used between different students um, and really minimize that. And then the other piece, you know, often students have to, you know, purchase a textbook for a class or purchase a piece of equipment. In this case, we ask them to also pur uh, purchase eyepieces so that they will have their own eyepiece to use with a microscope so that multiple students aren't, aren't using the same eyepiece. So um, just all of those little details, we've, um, you know, communicated with labs at the hospital and labs at other universities. And we feel like we have best practices in place that we can really execute in person, hands-on labs in a safe way that um, is really the ideal for science. That's really how you learn. You know, most people in any field learn best in a hands-on way. And so we're excited that so far we should be able to deliver that this semester in a way that, that feels safe for both the students and, of course, the faculty. And boy, those are things that the rest of us would never think about, right? All those different steps you need just for a microscope. Um, but it could be, right, that some of these things would be good uh, after COVID is over because people can be sick with anything at any time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of, I think it's made us all realize, wow, we probably could have been preventing a lot of just colds and flu if we, you know, had a lot of these practices in place. And of course, all of the labs are cleaned regularly, but not in quite as rigorous of a way where we're really having students disinfect with, you know, EPA approved uh, disinfectants, you know, after they, before they leave the lab. So it will, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of these protocols will hopefully be things that stay habits into the future. And as you say, the science building is already the uh, most likely place on campus to have an explosion or an ambulance call or the fire department or something just because of what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, lab safety is always the first topic of, of any new semester. Um, understanding where the fire extinguisher is, where the eyewash is. And again, for the most part, we, we never have to use those things. Mm -hmm. um, and just like this, for the most part, we will hope that we put all these protocols in place and no one will have an exposure. So it's just to to cover, you know, the pro safety is the priority. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have enough information now. We think we can do this in a, in a safe way that is really optimal for the experience the students should be having. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for putting all that effort into this to keep our students and professors safe. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, we are, we are just excited to be in a room with live humans in a safe way this spring. <laughs> <laughs> a new experience. All right, before you go, I have one very important question for you. Okay, let's hear it. I've been hung up on this since you said it at the very beginning. So speaking of science TV shows, are you a Mr. Wizard, a Beekman, or a Bill Nye the Science Guy? Yeah. <laughs> well, because of my age, I'm probably more of a Mr. Wizard. <laughs> Just... Me too. Yeah, big time. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Paul? I... <laughs> It'll have to. I'll come back Paul, to not me a science on that kid, one. Apparently, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it was. It was. Uh, it, 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 I did. I definitely was like, "Hey, kids! Today we're gonna put some pill bugs in a petri dish and see where they move." You know, I was like really digging deep <laughs> to try, try to nice. make these really r relatively fundamental experiments uh, seem engaging over a video. You know, we had it was crazy. I mean, it really was like. Well, actually, Scott brought stuff over for us. You know, we had a camera this way and a camera this way. And we had two computers. And, you know, it's like, we don't know what we're doing. This is... This is nice. Uh, so, but, yeah. we And then, you know, and you're showing some slides and then you're going back to the lab. And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to walk over here and I'm going to take the camera with me so you can see what's happening over here. Wow. Yeah. But. Great. I'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Last week, WestCon football coach Joe Loth joined us to talk about the football program, and we also discussed the prospects of his favorite pro team, the Cleveland Browns. The Browns were coming off their first playoff win in 39 years, and coach was optimistic about their chances against the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, the Browns choked, I mean, they lost to the Chiefs, so we brought Coach Loth back this week to analyze the state of his soul. How do you feel now, coach? Well, you know what? They actually had a chance to win that game, you know, obviously because Patrick Mahomes got hurt. But uh, it was a, at least it was a competitive game, something to build on for next year. And I think the uh, the fan base uh, leaves this year at least knowing we got a chance to be a pretty good team going forward too. Yeah, that's what the announcers are saying too. They were very high on the Browns, a young team with a lot of talent. Well, you know what it is. Whenever you have a quarterback, you have a chance to be successful long term wise. And the Browns struggled for 20 years because they couldn't find a quarterback. Yeah. So that's why teams, as you look at teams like the Steelers with an old Ben Roethlisberger, you wonder, you know, is their fan base potentially going to go through the same thing if they can't replace him with a good quarterback? Yeah. Of course, how old's them Mahomes? 23 or so? Yeah, all those guys in the AFC, they're all Baker Mayfield out of those guys, Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, uh, there's like four of them. He was the oldest guy at 25. So there's a bunch of young, good quarterbacks. Yeah, so it'll be pretty exciting. So uh, you're doing the uh, there's always next year thing now, right? Well, something to build on. There's only a couple teams left in the league right now. Now, who's your team as, as, as you're kind of? I uh, grew up in California, Northern California, so I root for the 49ers when they're good. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the NFL, though. You look at the 49ers two years ago, they're in the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's such a league that you got to stay healthy and, and, and all those things. So 
Exactly. And it's with the quarterback, like you say, this guy uh, Garoppolo is, you know, the next coming of uh, Joe Montana. And the last couple of years, he hasn't been so great, but we'll see. Yeah, it almost looks like something happened out there that they were so high on him that all of a sudden they're not high on him at all. They didn't even want him to throw the ball, you know? Yeah. Right, and they're looking at the draft to hire a quarterback, uh, draft a quarterback, maybe. Yeah. So, um, was there? How about your uh, text crew that you were on with? Uh, was there a lot of excitement and then sorrow and tears, or were there just sorrow the whole game? What this may sound bad, but you know, someone texted on there, "Hey, the only chance we have in this game is if something happens to Mahomes. They're like the next play, he gets dinged out of there." So yeah. it was. You know, it kind of gave, I don't want to say, uh, you know, it wasn't a good thing he got hurt, but it gave everyone a little bit of false hope. And then I think we were disappointed at the end because we had the ball, you know, with five minutes left, chance to take the lead, and we didn't didn't follow up on it. So I think everyone was disappointed that we didn't win a game, that we potentially had a got a lucky break and had a chance to win at the end. Yeah. Of course, you had that lousy break, too, when the guy um, lost the ball in the end zone and it turned into a safety somehow. Yeah, that was that was uh, you know you know you know what's interesting as a coach you look at that, and someone said, well, if that would have been a, a if that would have been a touchdown, you know what I mean, then the Browns would have won that game. But you know if they would have called that a touchdown, there's a really good chance Mahomes wouldn't have got hurt. Uh, the old right. butterfly effect thing that you know that then everything after that would have changed. So to say that one play really cost them the game. You just really know how it's going to trans transpire. The only time you can ever really look at one play changing a game, it's usually the last play of the game. Because mm -hmm. anything before that, if if an official makes a call one way or the other, you just everything that happens after is really something that would be totally different. So yeah, that, that's, that was a big play. We had a lot of momentum, but I don't know that would have made a difference long term wise because of probably wouldn't happen to Mahomes later on him getting injured. Yeah. It's interesting perspective as a coach, right? Because you, I mean, referees or umpires are going to make some bad calls every once in a while. And uh, like you say, you have to adjust, right? Without completely losing your mind, even when they blow it. Well, it's, just, it's the same thing, more, probably even more after a game happens. You know, there's a play in the second quarter. One of our guys drops a pass. It could be a touchdown. And everyone's and you lose by three points, and everyone's first thing is to say, "Hey, shoot, that kid cost us the game." Mm -hmm. When the true reality is, he catches that ball. Everything after that would have changed too. So it's hard to really put one play in perspective of changing a, a game. Though, though, you know, you can see momentum, and there's a bunch of other things. But yeah, it's it's a fine line you got to watch as a coach, as far as uh, knowing. You know, certain plays, yeah, they affect games, but the, the, do they really change them? Because you don't really know what would happen after that. Yeah. So there's a couple of things with this game. One, Mahomes got his clock cleaned. I mean, he just couldn't have been more beat up after that play. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you, you watch the play, you know, you know, he didn't really, it, it didn't look like, he, you know, when the play happens, you're like, how did he get hurt? You, you had yeah. almost watched it two or three times and you're still not sure. So that's kind of the, uh, just an interesting play because as much as he, he, he must have gotten cleaned, his clock cleaned, but, but I watched it, and I still wonder where it happened. Yeah, that's a good point. But as, you know, you watch him get up, he, could, he couldn't stand up without his teammates helping him. Yeah. But, you know, the, the football from, from youth to high school to college to pros, 
has done such a better job with all those things. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as injury prevention and being smart about things. You know, I, I was a guy that had multiple concussions starting in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. You know, in high school, my high school, my senior year in high school, I had a concussion on Thursday night in practice where I was in the hospital emergency room the night before and I played the next day. You know, it just <laughs> things were treated differently back then. So yeah. football's done a really good job of taking the head out of football and really making it safer and all those things. I don't know if there's not a safer position in any sport than playing NFL quarterback a lot of times. Those guys can barely get hit. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. The other uh, thing I was thinking about is some a team like the Browns, they play for so many years without success, then they come in, they're, they've had a really great season, but it's, sports is always disappointing except for the one team that wins the last game. Yeah, without a doubt. So, you know, there's, it's interesting, once again, as a coach, when you set your, your ultimate goal of winning a championship and you don't, Sometimes, you know, you have disappointing seasons based on just that goal. So you have to set a series of goals a lot of times. Mm. I know for us, we start off with, if we don't have a winning season, you know, it's a disappointing year. You know, if we don't win uh, the Little East, there's three teams in the Little East that are in the MASCAC, us, Plymouth State, and UMass Dartmouth. We try to win those two games. You know, you see, try to set up a series of things to, to, which uh, you define as success. Because ultimately, like at Division Three, I think there's, 230 Division Three teams. Mm-hmm. If you define ultimate success by winning uh, the national championship, I mean, there's going to be a lot of disappointed teams. And there's one other good thing. Uh, spring training is opening in a couple of weeks. So we can move over to baseball, yeah. Yeah, now if you're an Indians fan, and we just lost Linder, oh, and we yeah. just lost Kluber, and we just lost Cookie Carrasco, you know, all going to the, the New York teams. So, uh, but you know what's funny? the last five years, the Indians have had one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. The mm-hmm. Yankees has been like five times higher. Every year we play the Yankees in the playoffs. They may beat us, then they lose the next round. So baseball is a funny sport that that uh, you can spend a lot of money. I don't think the Yankees have won a World Series since 2009. I think we've been to one sooner than they have. So so you, we, you always have hope in baseball just because that's almost a game where the GMs got to outsmart the other GMs uh, with signing guys. Yeah. It's going to be tough not having Linder, though, right? Yeah, without a doubt. But they've done it. You know, the reason I think the Indians are successful is they've got a great manager in Tino Francona. Mm. And as long as they have Tino as their manager, I think they have a chance to be successful. And once once he decides to leave, I think, and they really have almost a house of cards because their payroll's so low and they've got to be smart with signings. they got to let veterans go, and then they got to bring up young guys and cross their fingers then sign those young guys to kind of short-term contracts. But I think the guy that can pull that all together is their manager. And if we lose him, I think the house of cards potentially falls apart in Cleveland. Yeah. Hmm. So he'll stay a few more years, right? Yeah, hopefully. All right. Well, maybe when the uh, Cleveland Indians dive headfirst into last place, we'll bring you on again. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully that's not for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, All right. It. Joe, thanks for being on again and having a good attitude about okay. uh, getting teased. See you later. Yeah, I'll talk to you guys later. Okay, bye-bye. All right, well, back to reality, Pete. Uh, as you know, our residential students are in the process of moving in, and our commuter students will start 
All students will start online classes uh, Monday, September 25th. The regular schedule classes will begin February 1st. Some will be online, continue to be hybrid and all that. The big emphasis that's different from any other year, except last semester, is that you gotta be tested for coronavirus if you're a residential student living on campus. Um, presumably everybody has had their test by now, but when you show up on our doorstep, you're gonna get swabbed again. And then five days later, you're gonna get tested one more time we're worried about all these uh, people coming in from the outside community and uh, bringing the coronavirus to campus. But we're gonna test everybody. If you're found to have uh, be positive, we're gonna uh, take care of you. And we're hoping that very few uh, positives go undetected and that we can start the year off very clean and um, as you know, uh, last year there were no coronavirus passed along in classrooms. So we were pretty happy about that. And students and faculty and staff all did a good job about protecting themselves and each other. So we're kind of, uh, uh, you know, zooming in on you, but uh, when you first show up, but if everything works right, you'll be relatively free and easy after that. Of course, you still have to wear your mask, you have to wash your hands and all that. You're doing all we're, those things, right, Pete? Yeah, and we're unfortunately very used to all those things at this point, so it shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. Too much we of an know adjustment. How to do it. No. But yeah, you've probably been doing it at home too. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be good to have students back on campus and have professors yelling at us again and all that. I'm ready. Uh, yeah. They call Pete when uh, there's an emergency tech. Uh, crisis in one of their classrooms and he runs out and saves them. It's true. Most of the time. <laughs> All right. So next time we talk, we will have a few days under our belt and we'll see, we'll know how, how it's going. Okay. So the next time we talk on at WCSU, we'll have a few days under our belt. We'll know how it's going and we, we can report back on that. And uh, until then, I'm Paul Steinmetz for Pete Puccio and At WCSU. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.